Today, I'm chatting with and learning from the beautiful Liam Martin. He is the founder of Time Doctor and Running Remote. Running Remote is the world's largest conference on remote working. So it's no surprise that today's episode will be mostly talking about why remote working can be a superpower to your business. It's a long episode, so let's just go for it because we kind of go off tangents a few times, but I'm not going to apologize for that. Let's just jump straight in. Welcome to Startups with Niall Marr. This is a show that covers a wide variety of business and startup topics, but ultimately the goal is to give you tips, strategies, and advice to grow your business and hopefully entertain you along the way. You won't just be learning from me. I'll also be chatting with founders and other interesting people from the startup world and sharing their conversations with you too. Thanks for listening and let's grow together. You have one of the most glorious beards I think I've ever met out of Thank all you. of the podcasts that I've done. I think I'm at 4.11 and you win most epic beard. We'll have to get an article of who those people wore just so I can shame them publicly. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Actually, go to Listen Notes. Uh, ListenNotes.com. You just type in my name and, and it records every single podcast that I've ever done. So you can then just tweet everyone and say hey, you didn't have as good of a beard as me. Probably a lot of the female podcast hosts will uh, be fine yeah. with that. But uh, anyways. I, I'd say they will be happy to lose that battle. It's the male ones with, that yes. have a beard that will care. You know, I do feel um, sad for men, and I have about two or three friends of mine that are like this, that just can't like connect their beard together. You know, they've got like, they got the patches here, they got the mustache, they got the goatee, but they can't get in between. And uh, at least for me, the most masculine thing that I can do on the face of the planet is just stroke my beard. It feels so good. <laughs> uh, and it's it's too bad that a lot of guys can't do that. I say it to people all the time, I just stroke my beard and I have this fancy microphone and it makes me look competent. There you it's go. all an illusion, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll stroke too hard, it'll fall off and then... The <laughs> Everyone will notice from there. We are a total tangent, but I did used to have it way longer, and when it's, it started waking me up at night, and that's when I decided to cut it because it was okay. getting caught under my arm when I was rolling over in the middle of the night. <laughs> so I was when it started wow. getting to do that impractical level, I said, "Let's uh, get rid of that." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't get you here today to talk about um, beards, uh, although oh, I can share, you know, some beard oils with you afterwards. Okay. <laughs> The, what I'm looking for is uh, tips and tricks and remote working advice since it's your domain of expertise, really. Sure. First off, I'd love you to introduce yourself to everyone. My name's Liam Martin. I'm a human being located on planet Earth. More specifically, I am located in Montreal, Canada right now in preparation for our yearly conference, which I run called Running Remote, which is the largest conference on remote work where we teach people the tactics and strategies to become unicorns and deca unicorns with a remote first methodology and i've been doing that for about five years i've run some other tech companies in the SaaS space like time doctor and stuff.com which are both time tracking tools for remote teams and actually just recently and the reason why i'm here is i wrote a book over the last year and a half called running remote as well which really studies the one single difference, and there's actually only one, that all of the remote pioneers had, the people that were remote before the pandemic, in comparison to all of the pandemic panickers that just went remote at gunpoint during uh, the last two and a half years. 
Oh, nice. And I have to ask, can you share that now or do people have to go buy the book? I mean, maybe buy me a drink first and let's get into this podcast a little bit deeper before we uh, before we go into that deep insight because people have got to listen to the rest of this podcast before I tell them the secret to the universe. I'll also share the whole uh, beard oil at the end of it as well. They might hang around for that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. So the book must have been uh, a tough thing. I've been asked Super tough. by Pact a couple of times to write a technical book and when I just sit down and look at the amount of work that it takes, it's just unsurmountable to me and my, my time. So how did you go about writing the book first off? So the beauty, I'll, I'll give you the actual secret, <clears throat> which kind of directly connects to how I wrote the book. So all of these remote first founders that were remote before the pandemic, the people that I call the remote pioneers, the one single thing that they all had in common that other people do not is a term that I'm boiling down to what I call asynchronous management, which is the ability to be able to manage people without directly interacting with them. And a lot of computer engineers and developers probably know that terminology, but outside of the remote work world and kind of the, the tech world, asynchronous management and asynchronous work is not necessarily all that well known. And so one of the big core components of that is the platform actually becomes the manager instead of the individuals inside of that organization. So like your manager is effectively Jira <laughs> more than it is your scrum master as an example. And so the way that I was able to write this book was I was the CMO of the company. I actually technically still am the CMO of the company, but about a year and a half ago, when uh, we decided to write this book, I delegated that responsibility to my VP of marketing, VP of growth and uh, VP of CS. And so they took on those roles. And because we have open transparency throughout our entire organization and all of our processes and systems are all documented, it was very, very easy for them to be able to take over my roles, chop it up, and uh, I could spend the next year and a half working on a bigger problem, which was really trying to communicate this message, which I think is the core reason why the vast majority of people that are tired of remote work and want to go back to the office don't, they, the reason why they want to go back is because they don't actually understand that it's a different managerial framework that you need to be able to implement to have success with the remote work. I do want to actually get some more information on the, the book writing part, because I think that's an interesting sure. thing that yep. a lot of people, I think a lot of business owners and founders are very egotistical in a sense. So the idea of having their thoughts and everything printed in paper is exciting for a lot of people. So that's why I just want yep. to dig into that. But on the asynchronous side of things, because I know there's something you're really passionate about. I love asynchronous management for the one reason is it cr gives protected space for people to do their best work as well, where mm -hmm. you're not obliged to suddenly drop everything mm -hmm. and stop working on the important things just to answer them. I tell people constantly that as a manager, your responsibility is to remove distractions from your direct reports from the employees that you manage. And the vast majority of the time, unfortunately, you are the problem, the manager. You are the distraction machine that is stopping them from achieving what my friend Cal Newport calls deep work, which is another kind of core piece of literature that feeds into asynchronous management, which is the capability to be able to have everything at your disposal to be able to solve difficult problems, to get yourself into that flow state that you need in order to be able to 
write the code that you you know that to to get a solution to that problem to make that code work is it requires such immense focus and flow and the moment that you get into it and then all of a sudden it's like oh shit all right well in 15 minutes i got to go to this meeting you can't even get yourself into it you need really solid blocks of time to be able to interact with that type of information and the vast majority of managers don't actually recognize that which is really unfortunate and we try to teach that inside of the book but uh writing the book hard very difficult took a year and a half should have taken a year i spent like half my day working on that book every single day we did a couple dozen meetings <clears throat> or sorry interviews for the book even just kind of like building out your methodology uh was was very very difficult like what do you name all of the different parts of your book even the core thesis which i don't know if you know the term blue ocean there's a book called blue ocean it talks about like what's your unique identifier in comparison to everyone else like how are you different from the market and asynchronous management there is no book written on it as of yet that we were able to find at least nothing that we found that's been popular that's for us our blue ocean term which is it's not actually remote work that's the problem it's the management platform that you've been working under inside of remote work is the problem and this book helps to solve that core issue and allow for people to actually get managed effectively or in a remote way but yeah writing a book so hard i would say halfway through i wanted to quit like sounds about right that sounds like nearly everything anyone starts building whether it's a book or software halfway yeah. through is always the point i just i wanted to quit and i didn't quit because I just kind of grinded my gears forward and actually the the core piece and what I tell anybody whether it's a book a startup anything be really passionate about what you're trying to solve for right so I was very passionate about trying to solve this problem our mission as a company that feeds everything that we do is we try to help the world's transition towards remote work. We try to help facilitate that. So this book was absolutely inside of that core thesis. <clears throat> and for me, I just kept that in mind as I was sitting with paragraphs for 6 hours trying to figure out how I can really get the context right. Did you have to go through major series of revision or anything or how did you test the idea? Did you get beta testers involved early on or did you just get a lot of feedback as you're going along what was the, what did the editing cycle look like for that then so one of the big advantages for me was i was already interacting with these remote founders so i already had a lot of really good introductions to them and thankfully they all lined up perfectly like when i asked them a question 11 out of 12 would say the same thing so nice. i was getting really really strong signals and these signals are very counterintuitive like the concept of radical transparency which is in the book which is that everyone inside of the company should have the same informational advantage as the CEO that's a very difficult thing to communicate to a general kind of like business audience but inside of remote asynchronous teams it's just a given that you should give everyone as much information as humanly possible so that they can then come to hopefully the same conclusions on difficult problems as you did as the CEO of the company So <clears throat> they all lined up perfectly and that was great because it was very easy to write there wasn't any like core disagreements between the groups 
But I think the other part of this was just when you have it all outlined and you want to kind of like then get into the nitty gritty of it, even thinking about the marketing of those terms. So I call it chocolate broccoli. Actually, it comes from a buddy of mine, Dan Martell, who talks about chocolate broccoli all the time. And he said like, all right, so no one wants to eat the broccoli, but if you dip it in chocolate, you know, they'll they'll love to eat chocolate, but then when you actually got it, when you have them, <clears throat> then you can feed them their vegetables. And I think that's where we're at right now with this book is I was trying to make sure I put enough chocolate on it so that people could actually get the message and can be pulled along throughout the book. So yeah. like I got a lot of stories about all the crazy stuff that remote pioneers ended up doing before the pandemic and and all of the adventures that we went on and we've got a guy that runs a team of uh 2000 people and he lives in a teepee in the middle of the costa rican jungle um <laughs> and he runs like a multinational corporation out of a teepee in the jungle he dragged a $200,000 fiber optics cable to his teepee, by the way, to be able to get this all to run. Like just weird characters that would not exist if it wasn't for remote work and the opportunities <laughs> that that provides. So a lot of kind of interesting stuff connected to that in there in the book. I feel like this is like John McAfee's new startup. He's suddenly undead in the middle of somewhere else because that sounds like one of those ridiculous founder stories. Yeah, I, I kind of want to call him my Colonel Kurtz, um, but <laughs> he didn't really like that that much. Um, <clears throat> anyways, you know, it's like he's the stereotype, not stereo, I guess maybe not stereotypical, but <clears throat> he's the uh, guy in the middle of the jungle that's just kind of gone through the ringer, gone through good and evil, and has said, I'm just going to give up the, the trappings of want, even... And I'm sure you probably uh, saw Elon Musk buying Twitter recently. Elon Musk was talking about how a lot of people were critiquing him because he had so many possessions and so much to lose, but then he just basically sold all of his stuff. And he was like, now what? <laughs> right? Yep. Like this guy has got the same thing. He's like, all right, I'm just going to sell everything and I'm just going to really focus on what's important, which is finding myself. And so I decided to find myself in the middle of the jungle in a shack uh, with $200,000 fiber optic. Yeah, I, I just love that. But the shack has to have broadband. I think that sums up a lot of the hippie technologists that are around as well at the moment. It's, once there's broadband, I can be stable and meditate. <clears throat> so I thought about actually releasing all of the interviews because we did them all over Zoom and recorded them. But <clears throat> this guy um, that, uh, that I interviewed, uh, when I interviewed him, he was nude, like completely naked when we interviewed in his junk, you know, like he was actually on a hill uh, for the interview and he was showing us all of his livestock and all this kind of stuff. And just, you know, he's a good friend of mine, but weird fucking guy. And just out there in the world, he could only exist due to remote work. And that's also, by the way, the promise that the book really gives you, which is the ability to be able to work wherever you want, whenever you want. Asynchronous management is actually the big piece that everyone's missing to be able to allow people to be not owning positions. So I'm not the CMO of the company, but I currently inhabit the position of the CMO of the company. And I can delegate that responsibility at any point if there's a more important problem for me to be able to, to address. 
And that's the beauty of asynchronous management. It just provides everyone the autonomy to be able to work on problems that they're really passionate about. I think that's the important thing is just that sense of empowerment and people getting their lives back. I think we've seen it a lot with COVID anyway. People have seen a life that they, I think a lot of people have just realized that they have shitty jobs and mm. they dislike doing them and everything else because you took away the one thing they liked and that was the, the social aspect or the meeting people in the offices. And this is leading into obviously how we stop people from feeling isolated and things in it. But I think there's a big sense of people want that freedom. People want to be able to see people, meet people, travel, do the things they're able to do and also be trusted that they're going to do their job. And sure. I don't think that's a big ask if you're hiring competent, good people. It's about getting the hiring right and then letting them do their thing. When I studied these remote asynchronous organizations, they had on average a EMPS score, which is Employee Net Promoter Score, which is effectively just a measurement of how happy these employees are of 70. And the average EMPS score is 36, at least in the United States. I don't know where it is globally, but basically if these asynchronous remote companies have double <clears throat> the happiness level than wow. people on premise. And the thing that's interesting is when you look at culture, so I asked all these guys, like, what does culture mean to you? Because a lot of companies are saying, oh, well, you can't build culture if you're not in the office. And the founder of Doist, Amir, uh, gave me a really good analogy to knock this home for everybody. Culture to them and to asynchronous organizations is not about the people in the company. It's about the work that you do in the company. And that's a small switch, but a lot of people think culture is, oh, well, we have pizza Thursdays and you get a cake on your birthday and, you know, we, we dress up last, you know, Friday of every month or something like that, like a wacky animal. I don't know. I've never been in an office. But it all seems pretty <laughs> boring and stupid to me, to be completely honest with you. But in asynchronous organizations, it's entirely focused on the mission of the company. So if you're not incredibly passionate about trying to solve for that problem and you as a company, your job is to basically filter for that. Are you really passionate about remote work? Do you want to be able to assist in the world's transition of remote work? If you do, then you should probably come and work for me because I'm very passionate about that particular subject as well. And you're going to have a ton of fun and you're going to do some boring stuff, but hopefully you're going to do a lot of really exciting stuff. But regardless of whether it's boring or exciting, you know you're feeding into the core mission, which is helping the world's transition towards remote work. And so that's the piece that like most HR professionals miss. And I just don't understand why they're not thinking in that context, because it's such a genius way to recognize, hey, you know what? We need to be able to make sure that people are really excited about the company, not the people inside of it. Because that's actually only a secondary issue because at any point those people could leave, right? Remove all of those other variables. Are you really excited about the company? Are you proud about what you know, you're producing as an organization? That's the key message that I think everyone needs to think about as we move forward to, you know, I think probably effectively a remote world. I don't think we're going back the other direction. We're very quickly, we're pretty much at the point where remote work is at its lowest point since 
March of 2020, and it's now going back up. So we're seeing a really interesting kind of fruition happen where I'm saying we're moving from working from home to true remote work, which is great. And I've seen even in the last week or two, Airbnb officially saying, hey, we're only doing remote now as well. And they got in one week, I think 800,000 hits on their careers page because people were just like, that's what I want. And there's so many, I think any business that doesn't offer this is going to start losing and bleeding good talent as well. Especially I know in, in Dublin here, it's so hard to get talented developers. So you do have to go a little bit more global now. And if you don't offer remote to all of your staffs, the people who are in the office are going, how come you trust them and not us to work at home? Right. You know, it's bizarre. You're absolutely right. I think that um, we're at a genie is out of the bottle moment where, oh yeah, I'm gonna go work for Airbnb. F you and your, you know, your crappy job. I'm gonna go work at Airbnb. I'm gonna go work at Shopify. I'm gonna go work at Coinbase. I'm gonna go work at GitLab. These are all companies that have never had an office or have just recently abandoned their offices and are absolute behemoths in the industry. So I think for anyone that's thinking right now, oh yeah, we can force everyone back to the office. Never gonna happen. Now you're gonna lose all your A players, which is actually a lot of people from an HR perspective, they think, oh yeah, we've only lost 20% of our staff when we forced everyone back to the office. Yeah, that's okay. You only lost the good ones. Like 20% of your workforce usually does 80% of the work. Those are like those A players that you want to be able to keep inside of the organization. And when they leave, your organization is still running, but it's rudderless. Like there's no one that's just kind of going to say, um, I have this mindset of if you went and you saw someone breaking into a car as an example, if you are going to go over there to help <clears throat> or if you're just going to watch, that's the difference between like someone who's committed and an A player versus someone who's just like, ah, not my, not my problem, <laughs> right? Like that's the very definition of a bunch of B players. And unfortunately, it's a very small minority of the population, but you want as many of those people as like, hey, stop breaking into that car. You know, I'm going to run after you, that kind of thing. Those are the people that really drive your organization forwards. And, uh, if you lose them, you may think that everything's fine right now, but in a couple of months, you're going to be in a world of pain. I love that analogy because I do a lot of research and study on hiring and getting the competitive edge on hiring and mm. what makes the top 5% so much better than everyone else as well. And a couple of books like Work Rules, The Who Hiring Guide, you know, having good scorecards and things like that are all very useful for figuring out what you need because the top 5% for your business is completely different than the top 5% for somebody else's business because mm -hmm. your mission is different than other businesses. So right. it's still, it's not the same 5% that people are fighting over as well, which is something else that I think a lot of people forget about. That's a really good point. It's not just that you're ignoring 95% of people, but how do you go about hiring remotely and checking for that? Is it a fail fast approach where you trial people and see what happens or is it a more rigorous upfront interview so we do do the initial interview and onboarding synchronously we haven't really been able to figure out how to turn that completely asynchronous but we do do a lot of testing we do a culture fit first and almost every single person that i interview i ask them the peter Thiel question do you know that question no i don't what important truth do you believe that 
most p- people disagree with you on. Oh, interesting. I don't even know if I want to answer that. That's a Let's that's a really it. tough. That's a what tough. Do you think? Uh, what is an important truth that you believe that most people disagree with you on? Yeah, I I think one for me that's grated in my business life, and it's a it's something I adopted from reading the Tibetan book of living and dying while taking too much acid. Okay. Early on in my career, but there, there's one statement that comes out of that book that has just resonated with me and has honestly led to, I didn't think it was going to be a deal breaker, but it's often led to the end of a lot of business relationships for me. And that is get rich right. I think that's the one thing mm. that I always come back to when I'm dealing with people is, are they only, are they after money with no boundaries or are they after, is there some compassion to their drives like I look I think no matter what way you interpret it interpret things it's it can be dirty money <laughs> at mm-hmm. some point but it's the case of what was the what is the key motivation for people and I think that is very mm-hmm. different when it comes to a lot of business people that I've dealt with over time yeah I think the key motivation is really important because I think ethical implications with regards to business that's a game of inches and sometimes it's almost imperceptible but when we make one business decision versus another business decision, and that one business decision may result in a feedback loop that takes you in a really negative direction. I'll give you an example. We had a we had a company that wanted us to build a feature that we did not agree with at all, which was they wanted us to be able to put video cameras. They, they basically wanted us to be able to turn people's webcams on without their permission and just have them on all day. And it was a massive contract. Like it was, it was like a seven figure ARR contract. It was enough to make a difference um, for us. But then we said to ourselves, which is a core tenant of everything that we do, at least for our time tracking products, which is, does this make the employee more productive? And the answer was no. Um, It doesn't make the employee more productive, so therefore we can't do it. Another one that we had, which was really difficult for us, is we had another client that wanted an on-premise solution. And the only reason why you would have an on-premise solution is because it's inside of an office. But we're a remote time tracking company. Like that's what our company is. We're we're specifically built towards remote teams. So we said, okay, we're not going to do it. You know, like those types of things are interesting. And I think you have to like lay down the constitution of the company beforehand. And then it's really difficult to come up against, <laughs> like the, the, that constitution will be tested over and over again. And you just have to be able to have the executive team and the board in place to be able to defend against that. But, you know, I look at companies that are really, really big now. And sometimes a lot of them have lost the battle. Like Google's core thesis is no longer do no evil. Like they got rid of that, (laughs) you know, just kind of like, that's a really core piece. And I really love that. But then how do you move forward? And I think that when we're seeing the future of remote work today, to your point, I mean, you said that there's not many developers and engineers available in Ireland. I think we're going to see a complete transition of work where Like if you thought that the world was flat beforehand, I think we're going to be absolutely just marble across the planet because now it's a really, it's a really fantastic opportunity for anyone anywhere to be able to get 
work opportunities that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to get access to, which is an incredibly exciting time for me, but also has a lot of possibly negative implications that are pulled along with that. Like, are we going to start to hire people from, you know, environments where we disagree with them, right? Like, Mm -hmm. are you going to hire Russians? There's a lot of fantastic Russian programmers right now. I I guess then the director team is responsible for making these decisions. And that's why everyone needs to be so cohesive in that unit, because they're the little things that can make everyone fall apart, I think. Yeah, I think that um, the other part of this too is make sure your cap table is either full of people that are on the same journey as you or stay bootstrapped. Um, Because there's a lot of guys that I know where the moment that they flip, where, you know, the investors have board control, stuff changes pretty quick. And you just, oh, we were doing that. Oh, well, we're now, we're doing the webcam thing. Well, why? <laughs> we said no to that. Well, it's uh, $12 million, so we're going to do it, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's just one of those things that you lose control of um, as, as the founder of that organization. So that's another big tip that I would have for people if they're thinking about giving up more of that control, I would always keep more than 50% founder owned. Or if you have a major investor, make sure that you've done massive due diligence on them so that they're not going to screw you in the future. Yeah. I think a lot of people forget that due diligence goes both ways where it's not just no responsibility or no anything when you start to take outside investment. And if you're like, I'm sure for you with your love for asynchronous work, that freedom has to be a big driver for you and what you want to oh, achieve yeah. from your career. So by adding those golden handcuffs would probably ruin that for you then on your business. Yeah. I mean, we, we have a lot of digital nomads inside of the company. So one of the big perks is be location independent if you want, up to you. And I travel about three to six months out of the year when it isn't COVID. And it's great. Uh, we leave around January the 5th. Right after New Year's, we come back around May, me and my wife and my daughter, and it's a fantastic lifestyle that I wouldn't have if it wasn't for remote work and probably also wouldn't have if I was answerable to a board that was not friendly to me. And that's a big piece of this, which just, do you want to have, like, there is a component, at least for me in business of, yeah, we want to make more money, but also what's more fun? Mm-hmm. Like, could you make 10% less money and double your fun? Oh, I'll do that. <laughs> right. And, and not many people kind of think about that, but it is absolutely true. And you need to have those types of ideas. You, you need to have those thought processes and be mindful of that as you move through and scale your organization, particularly if you're remote, because the way that you communicate inside of remote teams is a little bit more disconnected, i.e. asynchronous. So having those documents in place is absolutely critical as like a kind of filtering process for your organization to say, we just don't do that. Or yes, we when if we can sacrifice 10% of revenue for doubling everyone's fun, that is absolutely a decision that we should make. I love that because I think that's a, a metric that people don't focus on enough is just, are you having fun doing this? Because the older I get, the more I realize that we're all still children. And we all Mm. still want to play and we all still want to enjoy ourselves and be happy and laugh every day. And that trade-off 
is massive, especially if you're running a business that's going to consume you for quite potentially the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. If it's any, if it's meaningful enough, it will probably consume you for the rest of your life. So, yeah, why, why trade off the fun? Are you enjoying the podcast? Just so you know, most people will find this show through sharing. If you have a friend that you think would like this show too, open the app, tap that share button, and send them a real quick text. This will really help the podcast out to grow and find new listeners. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the person that gave me this quote that I'm remembering, but if you can't tell if it's work or play, you've got life right. If it's just, like, these podcasts as an example, I get to meet a really interesting person, sometimes three to four interesting people per day, and it's really cool and interesting, and I like it quite a bit, and I always learn something more about myself every single time I've done one of these. It's work. But it also could be play. Like, I'd do this for free, (laughs) you know, if I had the opportunity to do it. And so why not do as much of this as humanly possible? That's the type of stuff. If if you can't tell if it's work or play, keep doing more of it, particularly if it's making you money. It was Naval Ravikant's book, I think, that that was Ah, in. There you um, go. Because he has a great little quote in there, which is, it's easy to outplay somebody when they're working. And if you're feeling like it's just play all day, you're outplaying somebody. So it's easy. You can go a 20 hour day and it's okay. Whereas somebody else that struggles to get out of bed and struggles to get to their keyboard and struggles to do everything, it's you're just outplaying them, which is right. such a motivation when you're going forward. And the same for this. I'm doing this. I, I don't get any money off this yet. Or maybe I will in the future. I'm not sure. I don't do it for that. I do it to meet cool people and share some knowledge with people because I can you know, it's fun. It's a bonus if I can make a business out of this thing, I guess. But it's not the goal. The goal is to chat to people and figure out how they do stuff and how I can learn. You know, the other thing that I've learned is that is the only way to actually make money at something like this. So if you come at it with, okay, I'm going to monetize this podcast as quickly as humanly possible, you're never going to do it or it's going to be very, very difficult. But if you're doing it because you're really passionate about it and you love to talk to other people, you're going to do the 100 episodes that you need to do to actually get good at something to then have someone pay you, which for me is a lesson that I sometimes forget. Tried to open up a TikTok just recently and I came at it from the wrong perspective. So I shut it right back down. (laughs) I'm addicted to TikTok. Can't wait to go see those dances. Yeah. Uh, I came at it, I just immediately recognized, wow, this is getting super corporate and work-y for me, where it was forced. Like my PR team was like, okay, we need to get all these scripts together and you need to do all of these TikToks. And I was like, this isn't me. I don't, I wouldn't say that. Like just that kind of stuff. And I realized, okay, I need to hit the brakes on this one. Uh, Yeah, recalibrate. And sometimes you figure out, you might find a format that works for you in the future when you're not trying so hard as well, because I guess it's, we're always being told we need to be on everything. We need to be doing all things at all times. And I think that's also dangerous as well, because certain formats like this suit me because I like talking. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyone that knows me in the real world and not on uh, the online world will know that I like to talk a lot. (laughs) So (laughs) it means I get to do this now. Um, with new people from all over the world as well. Right. Uh, if I try to fit that into a 15 second, is that the format of TikTok? I don't use it yet. Uh, is it 15 seconds? 
It's, um, I think they actually have it now up to a minute. Some interesting, scary statistics about TikTok, by the way. It has double the watch time now of YouTube. That is terrifying. Yeah. So from a watch time, from an engagement and watch time perspective, TikTok's twice as big as YouTube. And when you think about, and for those the seven people and Niall who have not engaged with TikTok yet that are <laughs> listening to this podcast, it so perfectly locks in your personal algorithmic tastes that within 15 minutes of using it, it's just delivering you exactly what you want. And YouTube has actually taken this route as well. I mean, I know that you have a, a great YouTube channel and I've been working on one for about two years, mostly just the stuff that I'm putting up because I want to talk about it. But YouTube has, and my wife had a very successful YouTube channel that had 100,000 subscribers on it, but then she went from a subscriber-based viewership to an algorithmic-based viewership on YouTube. So now your, your subscribers don't really count for anything on YouTube or on TikTok. So you can have like a 10 million subscribers on TikTok, but all that TikTok does is it identifies whether or not that TikTok has the possibilities to go viral. And it does that through a very small amount of testing with the test group. And then if it doesn't, it drops off. And if it does, it pops up. And so it's a really kind of scary future, I think, for, I don't know, web one and web two, 0.0 type of people that are just thinking, okay, well, I have a voice. Here are the people that wanted to hear that voice, and I'm going to distribute that message to them. Now the new message is, yeah, you've collected all these people that want to hear what you have to say, but that doesn't matter anymore, and we're only going to give it to them if they really do want it subconsciously in the back of their own minds, which ends up producing a lot of weird TikToks, uh, which I don't necessarily like all that much to be completely honest with you i think generally ai is uh and this is coming from someone who has an ai lab we have like a bunch of people that just exclusively work on this problem inside of our companies and uh it's probably the scariest piece of technology i've ever encountered like yeah. scarier than <laughs> than every country on the planet having nukes scary in my opinion i think that it's probably one of the worst and most dangerous pieces of technology humanity has ever known and i think it could very well end humanity if we don't do something about it as quickly as possible there's a great book called super intelligence you should try out if you want mm. to even be more scared by it it's always good about i don't know if AI i want to i'm kind of at the point now where i feel like i've just given up um, <laughs> because all of these things like even just social media right Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, um, Twitter, I think is going to go back because Elon mm -hmm. just took it over. But having algorithmic targeting, that's only five years old. We could go back. Like, I don't know about you, but I got to opt in to every friggin' website in the EU and anywhere else, <laughs> right? To be able to accept all cookies or not accept all cookies. And coming from the marketing space, we thought this is never going to happen. This is ridiculous that they're going to implement this. But they did. And then the entire world kind of cracked into line and, and took suit. And so I think that we could do the same thing with algorithms and artificial intelligence. 
Um, it's just going to require somebody like the United States or the EU to be able to take a stance on that and say, we shouldn't be implementing these technologies and these technologies should actually be licensed the same way that you would license a weapon. I think it is important for AI and things. You have to actually be able to predict what will come out of the under, other end of these things because a lot of AI, hmm. you're not able to predict. So that's something they're trying to push towards, which is a little less scary, at least, if, you can, if, if it's just a mathematical model rather than a go off figure it out and now we have lost control of this it's taught itself now we just don't know what the what from this right. input what the output will be basically i think that's mm. a little less scary if we can get to that because at least it's reproducible it's when things start going a little bit haywire and you don't know why and you can't fix it and you can't take it down because your whole business runs on it either that's when we're uh, boned to put it politely <laughs> yeah i mean when you look at facebook facebook is effectively just that tiktok is is just an algorithm that's all that it is. It's not that they're putting up these cute little 30 second videos. It's that TikTok knows the exact video to send you next to maximize your response to make you want to watch another one. And that's wow. the scary part of TikTok or YouTube, which has effectively the same technology that I think we need to get rid of because if you really want to know someone, spend five minutes on their TikTok. You'll see who they are, right? Like my wife, she runs a mermaid business. So she teaches women how to swim in a pool with mermaid tails and she has locations all over North America. It's nothing but mermaids and princess Disney TikToks. Like that's all she's got on her TikTok, you know, rung. And for me, it's a lot of tech bros and Instagram girls. I like tech and boobs. That's basically what my, and probably a little <laughs> bit of like cat videos sniffed in there. And so I think that the reality is that you have to kind of, whenever I look at my TikTok feed, I'm like, oh, the last 20 TikToks have looked like this. Wow. Is that who I am as a person? You may even think about that next time you open up the app, if you're listening right now and th say to yourself, hmm, is this who I am? And then also maybe share that with your partner, you know, switch phones for 10 minutes and see what happens. I think, uh, you might get, it might uh, introduce a very interesting conversation between the two of you. Yeah, that is crazy. I just, I've never even opened an account. I think I've gotten sent links to it. I just didn't because of some weird security things I've seen on it from a web developer point of view, where it just scared me off it. Oh, yeah. As a result of that, I just never did. But now I'm just curious based on that, because anything I can do to start seeing, what do I actually like? It's weird that I would trust an algorithm over asking myself. <laughs> Well, there is a lot of, um, I mean, YouTube is effectively the same thing. If you, I turn this feature off, but the um, autoplay for next video. Oh, yes. I mean, they're trying to identify what should you watch next, right? They know you very well. They know what you just watched. They probably also know the time of day and they know which location you're in and all that kind of stuff. And then they come up with a pretty good idea of, oh, yeah, well... Now should probably watch this next video on Instagram girls doing computer programming, as an example. That might be a yeah. great now video, right? I, yeah, I there you go. Uh, that, so that, like, I think that's uh, that's probably how you easily hook me in then. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it, it would hook me in actually too. So I, that, that's the kind of stuff that I think is is scary when you see it happening so quickly. And you also see a platform like TikTok 
that like I don't know how long it's been up and running, but I feel maybe I got introduced to it two years ago, and it's just completely dominated the space. Mm-hmm. Like it's twice as powerful as YouTube. I don't know how much. I don't know if you can compare something like the time on site of Facebook versus or Instagram versus something like TikTok, but I think for your under twenties, TikTok dominates. It's scary. Yeah, and I mean like. So that is effectively a Chinese corporation, which may or may not actually be run by the Chinese government. And so we're sending billions of people's daily desires to the Chinese government. <laughs> like that's yeah. pretty scary when you think about it. Yeah, and, and that's the only reason I haven't uh, touched it yet. But again, you know, at a certain point, do we just give up, give in to the... To our new Chinese overlords, who knows? There's a sociologist, Emil Durkheim, who's one of the forefathers of sociology, and he wrote an article, and he calls it Durkheim's, it was referred to as Durkheim's Demon. And he basically believed that you could quantify all human activity down to a point in which you had a machine that could predict the next actions of any single individual within 99.9% accuracy rate. And if you had this type of weapon, then, and he called it a weapon, then uh, it would be the end of all things um, because you would be able to take one small action preemptively and completely change something for your desired result as opposed to the natural result. And so when you think about what we have right now, I mean, that's basically TikTok. Uh, that's that's Facebook, that's social media on mass right now. You can make these small changes to society <clears throat> that can completely allow for, um, in the U.S., Roe versus Wade to be rescinded or for Russia to invade Ukraine and a lot of Russians be okay with that. You know, these are the things that are really, really scary and they're happening today. And so that's why I believe that this should all be controlled um, by an international organization that can just license this. We know exactly what's happening with it. And more importantly, as to your point, we can turn it off. Today's sponsor is the Chinese government. (laughs) And most of this will be censored. Go to (laughs) tiktok.com and download their app. It's amazing. And uh, there's lots of beautiful cat videos and Instagram girls on there. And you'll love it quite a bit. And don't pay attention (laughs) to anything that we just said. Yeah, exactly. I want to make sure, did we get that nugget of gold that we started with, that we were meant to go over? Oh, well, I mean, that was probably the one thing that everyone in the remote work community pre-pandemic knew about remote work that almost no one knows about today, which I'm calling asynchronous management. So the ability to be able to manage people without directly interacting with them, that is such a magic moment in a business because the other thing, interesting insight that I got from studying all these companies is they have on average a managerial layer that's 50% thinner than their on-premise counterparts. So these asynchronous remote teams have more people doing work than people that are managing people doing work. And when you think about that on a on mass capacity in an en masse context, 
you're going to be able to out-innovate your competitors because you're going to have more people working on innovation inside of that organization in comparison to everyone else in the company or all of your different competitors. So I actually think it's kind of a Model T versus a horse and buggy moment where you're able to extract more value out of your labor force because you've surrendered a big part of those labor requirements to a platform and not necessarily to individuals inside of that organization. Nice. And so it's a much leaner business then as well. So you're going to make more money. You're going to get more output. You're going to, you get a better choice of people. It's it's really hard unless you love micromanaging and you feel like that's the only thing you were born for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, like I don't see there as any reason that you would choose any other way of working really. Yeah. And the other thing that a lot of these asynchronous remote companies talk about when you look at their employee net promoter score, which is almost double what um, the industry standard is. So people like working in asynchronous organizations um, 50% more, they're 50% happier than people that work in offices. The two things that they say is we have the autonomy to be able to do whatever we want inside of the organization and basically get to our solution without necessarily having someone show us that solution or keep us locked into a particular way of thinking. And then the second one is radical transparency. So most remote first companies have at their core a culture of radical transparency, which is effectively that everyone should have the same informational advantage as the CEO of the company. So this empowers people to, number one, be able to get to their solutions very quickly because they actually do have all the same information as the CEO of the company. But then also, secondarily, if there are difficult decisions that need to be made inside of the organization, the people inside of that company generally understand why that decision had to be made and agree with it because they say they have the same information as the CEO. And so I'll see these reviews like on Bamboo or whatever else tool you're using to be able to manage employee happiness. And it's really stuff like, yeah, we had a difficult decision that we had to make, but I completely support the CEO of the company in the decision that we need to do, we needed to do because I looked at the PL and recognized that we'd be out of business in six months if we didn't make the decision now. That kind of stuff, which is really tough and goes back to our ethics with regards to an organization because do you take a project that's like slightly unethical for you, but then it makes the company succeed and you can keep everyone employed? Or do you cut back on those people right now and stick to your ethics? That's like a constant back and forth. And fortunately, inside of asynchronous organizations, all of that stuff is open to everyone in the company. So you need a lot of trust inside of the organization, both on the employer side and the employee side to be able to make that work. But if you can, uh, it's absolute rocket fuel for your organization. That honesty is crucial, I think, to stop it from being a mommy and daddy situation as well, where you're just parenting and overseeing things and you're hiding things for people's own good and everything else when we're really dealing with a lot of adults who are working together to make some money and move their lives forward. So once we all gather and accept that we're all actually moving in the same direction, especially if you've hired the people that are on the same mission as you and will Mm -hmm. honestly try to drive you forward, then what's the problem in sharing all these things? Unless 
Mm. It's those ethical questions that you really are trying to hide. And I think that will make more companies be ethical as well. Yeah, the only thing that we do hide from people is salaries of different employees. So that's the only thing that we've held back. But there are a ton of asynchronous organizations that actually do open everything up, including employee salaries, their P&L, all the meetings that you have inside of the organization. Because you're an asynchronous organization, all of that stuff is online and can therefore be documented and digitized. Yep. So you can effectively become like, now if I sent, if I put you in our company and I said, hey, can you go back two years and figure out why we made this particular feature direction? Like why did we choose this feature versus another feature? You could do it because you could become kind of like an archeologist of the company. And unless you do have that, um, you can't actually know what the heck you did. There's so many times that we're like, oh, why did we end up doing that? We go back a year and a half. Oh, well, it was it was Niall that made that decision. And Niall's an idiot. We fired Niall six months ago, right? So why are we still doing this? Why did we still make this decision happen? And why did he come to that conclusion? You know, it's like a lot of that stuff is a really interesting counterintuitive stuff that you wouldn't have otherwise think is a huge advantage, but actually is a massive advantage, particularly as the company scales. So like as your company grows, asynchronous work becomes more and more advantageous to you strategically and both tactically. I hope more people will take it on board here. There's a lot of people are trying to get people back into the office. I had an event last week and 75% of people who were there were working remotely. And that's why they came to the event and the meetup because it was a networking event. Right. Other 25 just came straight from the office and okay. you know, they needed to be here more than anyone else. I always love to find out people's favorite books and their favorite piece of software at the moment. I'm sure you have a couple of great ones. But first off, I know the, the best recommendation for everyone to go and pick up now is running remote, obviously, mm -hmm. because that's one of the best books ever. And then you from there, what, 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 yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You can use that as a testimonial on the site as well. What other, what is your favorite book or the one that you've most read? Oh boy. I mean, I think I'm going to frame this in terms of tech. And I think the most impactful book for the tech industry is Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Shows you the framework of building a really big business and why you should build a really big business and reframes your mindset on it, which was super impactful for me. His first rule is competition is stupid. If there's competitors in your space, get out of your space and find a space that doesn't have competitors. Very counterintuitive, but makes perfect sense for the vast majority of people that are listening to this podcast right now. And then um, one of my favorite fiction is uh, The Chrysalids. I don't know if you've ever read that book before. It's like a science fiction. No. Yeah, it's a science fiction um, post-nuclear apocalypse society that goes through mutations and it's 3,000 years in the future but then some of these children can communicate telepathically. But the only book that's left in all of society was the Bible. So it's like a new dark ages and these young children that can communicate telepathically are routed out by that society because they're imperfect. In the eyes of the Bible, they're imperfect. It's a very interesting book and it was, I think it was written in like 1930s, so it was way above its time, way ahead of its time in terms of the science fiction. That's a that's an interesting one. That sounds 
Dark they were and fun. evolving into butterflies, right? They they were effectively evolving into this new evolution of humanity. That's really cool. Yeah, I'm gonna have to check that out. And then, what's the, your favorite piece of software that you use most of the time, or that you'd be lost without? Oh well, those are two separate questions. My favorite piece of software that I would be left with, that I would be nowhere without right now, is probably Asana. So I uh, know you know what I'm gonna say Google Apps, because like that th- I'm if I look at my workday. The majority of my workday is spent in Google Apps, Docs, spreadsheets, Google Slides, all that kind of stuff, email. Um, that's And it's so affordable. I think I pay something like $7 a month per person for it. It's, it's fantastic. And then the piece of software that I'm currently really liking right now is actually the, um, the Oculus Quest 2. We, bunch of, we bought a bunch of those inside of the company and we're now meeting in the metaverse for like fun and it's a way for us to be able to kind of just hang out and relax but more specifically i'm trying to figure out how people are going to work in virtual reality because i think that that's a really open question and no one solved for it but if the metaverse and vr is adopted at the scale that everyone is suggesting that it's going to be adopted at then how you work inside of it is going to be absolutely critical. So I'm spending about an hour a day now just kind of like thinking about it, figuring out what's going to be next and figuring out what I could build inside of that space. That is crazy. You're the first person I I know that's going and searching this and actively getting into the metaverse now and just for that competitive edge as well, I guess, in your space as well. It's it's really interesting. I was 12 years early for remote work and I'm probably not going to be 12 years early for the metaverse, but Apple's coming out with their headset within a year, right? That thing is going to be probably the device that just blows everyone away. But the core thesis, if you believe, one of the things that I I do a lot when I think about a business and if I'm going to build one is I ask myself, what conclusions am I making from my assumptions? So you can go through that exercise and one of my core assumptions is that the metaverse will be big, right? We're talking billions of people using the metaverse on a daily basis. If that is true, then it is ap- there is going to be a Zoom for the metaverse. There is going to be an Asana for the metaverse and it very well might not be Zoom or Asana because they may not be paying attention to it quick enough. So. For me, I'm thinking about that. How do I work in the metaverse? That's about as far as I've gotten at this point, unfortunately. Uh, I haven't come up with an app yet, but hopefully nice. next year I'll figure something out. That's very interesting. I'm looking forward to keeping an eye on you, Liam, and seeing uh, what you come up with as well. Uh, keep me in the loop. I'll have yeah. to get a headset just so I can try out your new software or whatever you design. It's a ton of fun. If you've never been on the Quest headsets, they're so much fun and really do give you a view into the future. I bought the DK1 kit way, way back in the day. And I actually, so I must have lost it because I was trying to keep it because I thought to myself, this will be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars 20 years from now. And I moved houses and I can't seem to find it anywhere, which is super uh, frustrating. It, will, it, it was show definitely up somewhere. A, it was a cool moment when you put on that headset and you just looked around and you had this fluidity to motion 
that for anyone that's thrown on a headset for the first time, you really have this wow moment of yeah. this is the future. I'm sure this is tons of information for anyone that's looking into improving their asynchronous working and also just adapting to the new way of working, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If anyone's uh, interested in more, go to runningremote.com slash book. We've got the book right there. And if you can't afford the book or to go to our conference, go to youtube.com slash runningremote where we put up all of our talks for free. And you can learn a whole bunch about how we build and scale remote teams. And there's even the weird guy from the TP there too. He's got to talk. I think that's everything, Liam. So you're back to real work now. You can go play somewhere else for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. I had so much fun chatting to Liam there. I'm sure you could tell. If you are interested in running remote, I will put all of the links in the description below. As always, running remote is on on the 17th and 18th of May this time around. And if you missed it, it's a regular event. So check the website for that. I'm really excited to get my hands on his book as well, because he was just full of knowledge and clearly just loves this space. And I've said it probably on most episodes so far, but I just love when I meet really passionate people. No matter what it's about, I just fucking love passion. So that's all for this week. Have fun, stay safe, and I'll chat to you soon. If you enjoyed this episode, I have a little favor to ask. If you could leave the podcast a kind review, it would really help the show out. It appeases the algorithm gods and helps me reach new people, so I really appreciate it. And until next time, my beautiful friends, keep learning and keep growing.